Chapter 14 of The Boy Chums in the Florida Jungle by Wilmer M. Eli. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Matt Perard. Chapter 14 Scouting. Fortunately for Charlie, the newly leveled road was still so unpacked and soft that the mule quickly tired, with its feet at every stride sinking to the fetlocks and before it reached the end of the grade, the lad had it under control. At the end of the grade lay the heaps of soft sand and mud the machine had lately thrown out. He must cross the ditch in order to get around the machine and do it before he reached the ant-like hills of dirt. He rose in his stirrups and surveyed the ditch ahead. It was about eight feet wide and several feet in depth, and in many places the bottom was nothing more than liquid mud. Picking out a place where the bottom showed white sand, the lad headed the mule for the ditch, and, as it hesitated for a moment on the edge, he brought his whip down smartly on its flank. With a snort of rage, the mule leaped forward, clearing the ditch by a full two feet. It was a wonderful jump, and Charlie settled back in the saddle with a sigh of relief. "'You're sure some jumper, Violet,' he said. Skirting the edge of the ditch, until he had passed the machine, the lad regained the old road and rode slowly along, examining closely the route the machine would have to take. This was indicated by the surveyor's stakes, pieces of lath stuck into the ground every hundred feet. For the most part, the stakes followed the line of the old road, departing from it only where the road turned and twisted and Charlie was able to follow them easily. The surveyor had done his work well. Every hundred feet had its stake, and on each stake was marked in blue pencil the number of the stake and the number of feet the new road should be graded to make it level. A full sense of the magnitude of the task they had undertaken came upon the lad, as he followed up the never-ending line of stakes. Here they led through a little hummock of dense growth, where it would be a fearful job to clear away the timber and dynamite the stumps. Beyond the hummock they crossed stretches of prairie or pine barrens, or skirted the treacherously soft edges of sawgrass ponds, only to enter another hummock beyond. Charlie gave a sigh of relief when the stakes joined the old road again. There's sure some bad digging in those hummocks and around the edges of those ponds he said to himself and how easy it will be for our enemies to tie up the machine for weeks break us financially and drive us off this job if they just do one simple little thing that a child ought to think of i guess it is because the thing is so simple that they have not thought of it the reason for the stakes following the old road so steadily soon became apparent, for a little farther on it entered the thickest jungle the lad had ever seen. On both sides rose gigantic trees, matted together by great entwining creepers, and on each side of the road lay stagnant pools of water, covered with nauseous-smelling green slime. Not a sound of life came from the jungle's gloomy depths. The only living thing seemed to be the huge, sluggish moccasins that slipped noiselessly from the road into the pools as the mule approached. Evidently, 
the surveyor had decided that the old road was the only feasible route through the jungle. Suddenly, Charlie ducked his head as a whining, singing sound passed over him. He had heard that whining message before and knew it for what it was. A rifle bullet, he ejaculated, bewildered as he reined in the mule and looked around. But no powder smoke met his searching gaze and no report followed the bullet's whine. Again, it came, that menacing, whining sound, and from a tree close beside where he sat on the mule, an inch-thick branch rattled to the ground, cut clean from the tree by the bullet. Still, Charlie remained motionless, not knowing which way to go, backward or forward. But the next whining bullet decided the matter for him. It plowed a bit of skin from the mule's flank, and the startled animal, leaping forward, began to run. By the time the lad got it under control, they were half a mile from where the shooting had taken place. Whew! That was almost uncanny, the lad muttered to himself. No smoke, no report, nothing but the whizzing of the bullets. It was not any native of these parts doing that firing. That's a cinch. The Indians and cowmen do not know that there are such things in existence as smokeless powder and maxim silencers. The weird jungle proved to be about two miles across, and Charlie soon, with a feeling of relief, rode out into a pleasant open country, dotted with small clear water lakes. He now began to come upon signs of life, cows grazing on the short, crisp grass, hogs rooting in the soft, muddy places. He grinned as, turning a curve in the road, he came suddenly upon a group of Indian maidens bathing in a little lake, and who, with shrill cries, bolted for the cover of a thicket when they spied him. Charlie, with a grin on his face, kept his head turned the other way as he rode past. Not long after passing them, he began to come upon patches of cultivated ground, and the thatched roofed open-walled dwellings of the Indians. At the first dwelling, he dismounted, and fastened the mule to a tree. The Indians, from all the shelters, crowded around him with eager greetings. He was delighted to find among the crowd many of whom he had met before in the Everglades. These were apparently delighted to see him, and gravely made him acquainted with the rest of the tribe, which was composed of about one hundred braves, besides women and children. They insisted upon his having dinner with them. They fed and watched the mule, and altogether made him feel that he was among friends. For his part, Charlie was astonished at the evidences of prosperity this tribe exhibited. Their ponies, dress, and dwellings were far superior to any other tribes that he had ever met up with. But what astonished him most was the patches of cultivated ground. Never before had he seen such a wonderful growth of corn, yams, melons and pumpkins after a dinner of stewed venison yams and melon charlie began to ask the questions that had brought him out on his lonely ride the indians answered them readily yes they had seen white men strangers there had been several out as far as indian town sometimes they came two or three together sometimes one would come alone they would camp for one sleep, 
then return to town and be seen no more. One there was, who came often, a little man, with a beard like a spade. No, they did not know what the stranger's business was so far out from town. They carried guns, but seemed to kill no game. Mr. Bower, the man who kept the trading post two miles farther out, might be able to tell him more about the strangers. So Charlie mounted the mule again and rode out to the trading post. The road led direct to the little store hut, which was surrounded by a magnificent grove of oranges and grapefruit. Mr. Bowers, a fat, jovial-looking man, greeted him cordially, but could tell him nothing more about the strangers than he had already learned from the Indians. One fact he did learn, however, none of the visitors ever went beyond the trading post. The lad then knew the clue for which he was looking must lie somewhere between the trading post and the machine. We are meeting with some opposition in our road building, Charlie explained frankly, and I did not know but what it might come through. You cattle owners objecting to having your grazing lands thrown open to new settlers. Lord, no! exclaimed Mr. Bowers in frank surprise. We have been trying to get that road out here for years. There's only half a dozen of us scattered between here and the big lake, and it has been hard work forcing the county commissioners to have the road built. Of course, we want the road. Our oranges rot on the trees now every season because we are not able to haul them through the mud to the railroad. Our groves, with that road opened, would be worth more than our cattle. What if it does bring in new settlers? They will help to make our groves and lands still more valuable. If anyone tries to hold up that road building, we will fix him, if we can get our hands on him. It was well along in the afternoon when Charlie bade the genial Mr. Bowers goodbye and headed his mule back for camp. He alighted at the Indian camp for a moment to examine the land, which seemed so wonderfully fertile. On the surface, it appeared sandy and like other pine land, but a couple of feet below the surface, he came upon a kind of soft, grayish rock. He dug out several pieces with his knife, dropped them in his game bag, and remounted, and, waving a last farewell to the Seminoles, he proceeded on his homeward way. It was with a feeling of dread that he rode back through the jungle, expecting every minute to feel the impact of a bullet. But he emerged safely on the other side, without any message from the hidden enemies. Darkness fell soon after he'd left the jungle, but he merely let slack the reins and trusted to his animal's instinct to find the way home. Soon he spied the lights of the machine in the distance, and a half hour later he dismounted at the camp, aching and sore in every muscle of his body, and discouraged over his fruitless trip. End of chapter 14